Many of you know who Anne Rice is. She is most famous for her fiction writing about vampires, and she's garnered quite the following because of that. But what many people don't know about her is that she had returned as an adult to the faith that she walked away from as a child. And she has a really interesting story with that, but she also came out a few years ago and let the world, she had, let the world know she had changed her mind. And this is what she wrote. For those who care, and I understand if you don't, today I quit being a Christian. I'm out. It's simply impossible for me to, quote-unquote, belong to this quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and deservedly infamous group. For ten years I've tried. I've failed. I'm an outsider. My conscience will allow nothing else. I don't really like disappointing all my Christian friends and contacts. I really don't like it. It's painful. But I did what I felt I had to do. I wonder what goes through your minds when you hear the testimony of Anne Rice coming out and saying that she can no longer consider herself a Christian because the Christians that she had been involved with were a disputatious, quarrelsome, hostile bunch. Maybe some of you have had an experience or experiences being around Christians who have that kind of infamous reputation. I know I certainly have been as well. And I also wonder, what might you say to her if you're sitting across from her having coffee and she were to confess this to you, to tell you that this day she's quitting being a Christian? What would you want to say to her? As I've thought about that, I think I would lead with, I am sorry that that has been your experience. Would you tell me more? And I think I'd also want to tell her that I've experienced something very similar to her various places in my life as I've been around quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious Christians. And, and when that happens, it's, it's really a tragedy because that is not what Jesus was known for. If you stop and ask yourself the question, what was Jesus known for? He was a great teacher, no doubt. But he was also a person who was filled with compassion. He wept over his own city of Jerusalem because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And you see the, the beauty of Christ paying attention to those people who society had written off, especially the religious people. He paid attention to and spent time with the outcasts, the losers of society. And Jesus, perhaps, is most famous, famously known for his, his love, which led him to the cross. We're going to consider the humility of Jesus both this week and next week and on into our Advent season. And we're going to Look today, especially in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. We're not going to take that whole chunk that we had read for us earlier, but we're going to spend some time looking at the preface to that beautiful passage that talks about Christ humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, and therefore God exalting him. So today's just the setup, the preface to that great exposition. So let's pause for a moment and pray and ask the Lord to teach us and to help us as we unpack what the Apostle Paul, Jesus' right-hand man to the Roman Empire, wrote to some Christians living in Philippi. So let's pray together. Lord, as we consider your word this morning, as it comes to us in the form of this letter that Paul the Apostle wrote, inspired by you to some groups of Christians living in this Roman Empire in a city called Philippi. Help us to 
to take to heart what is being said here, to be willing to be open and ask ourselves some hard questions, and to seek to follow in the footsteps of Paul, who's following in the footsteps of Jesus, as he seeks to get us in touch with humility. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Imitating Christ's humility. This letter that Paul is writing to these Philippian Christians, he is writing in response to a visitor from that congregation, a man named Epaphroditus, and he had collected gifts from the church and brought them to Paul to help pay for his imprisonment, which is weird to think about, but you had to pay for that back in the day, buy supplies and, and things like that. And he's getting an update from Epaphroditus on the situation in Philippi. And so we've looked at the first chapter, which was basically Paul giving them an update about himself. And at the very end of chapter one, he makes a turn and he calls them in their situation to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ and to not be frightened by any of the opposition that they are facing. And now Paul turns in chapter 2 and tells them about another threat, a clear and present danger that they face. It's not a threat from the outside, the opponents that they are facing, the persecution that they are facing, but it's, it's in many ways a much more insidious threat because it comes within their congregation. It comes from within their own hearts. And so let's consider that today as we work through this passage. Paul says in chapter 2, verse 1, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. That's a lot packed into that sentence there, and it helped me to kind of put it in a form of an analytical outline to see a little bit of the structure of what's going on here. So I'm putting this up on the screen, and hopefully it will help you make sense a little bit of what's going on here. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, that phrase in Christ is Paul's favorite way to describe followers of Jesus their union with him. And he uses it some 60 times in his writings. You are in Christ. You are in Christ. You are in Christ. It's like he's trying to get across to the followers of Jesus. This is your new identity. He writes to some Christians living in the city of Corinth these words. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. That is, when you hear the good news of Jesus, that he's the Lord and Savior of the world, he offers forgiveness and eternal life to whoever turns to him and trusts in him, when that happens, we are placed in Christ. We're no longer in ourselves. We're no longer in what the scriptures call in Adam, that first representative who fell in rebellion against God. We are now in Christ. But he also says this, do you not realize this about yourselves, that Christ Jesus is in you? The believer's union with Christ means that not only that believer is in Christ, but Christ is in the believer. Theologians talk about this as a mystical union with Christ. And so Paul says, this ought to give you great encouragement. And of course, just reflecting back on what he said in chapter 1, as he faced potential execution, he said, for, to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. There's great encouragement. It's a win-win situation for the believer. So he says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, what, what kind of love is he talking about here that we should derive comfort from? Is he speaking of Jesus' love? He might be. This is the way the NIV, New International Translation, or, uh, tra uh, puts it. 
New International Version, that's what I'm trying to say. That's how the New International Version translates it. It says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love. And of course, if you think about that, of course there's, there's comfort. Paul says elsewhere, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. He never recovered from the grace and love that Jesus extended to him. And in a very real way, you and I shouldn't either. When we experience that and understand it, that is definitely comforting. But Paul might be talking about his own love for the Philippians. If you have any comfort from the love that I have for you. Earlier, or actually later in this letter, he's going to talk to them as, as people for whom I love and long for, my, my joy and crown. Paul loved this congregation. It was, it was the first congregation he started in Europe. He loved this people, these people. And so he might be talking about his love for them, but he also might be talking about their love for one another. Earlier in this letter, he told them about what he had been praying for them, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. When Christians love one another and love one another well, oh, what strength, what comfort there is in that. But Paul also might be referring to the love of the Father. God the Father. The Apostle John put it this way, God is love. And this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his, only, his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And of course, you remember what Paul said to the Romans. He said, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. To be a believer in Jesus is to experience the love of God the Father for you. And so which is it? Is Paul referring to the comfort of Jesus' love? The comfort of his own love for them? The comfort of the love they give to one another? Or the comfort that comes from the Heavenly Father's love? I don't know. <laughs> he leaves it uh, kind of vague there. And maybe as we reflect on it, all of that is to come into place. You could put it like this. To be a Christian is to be immersed into a new and ongoing experience of deep, soul-satisfying love. <laughs> that soul-satisfying love from the Father given to us through the Son that we get to experience when we're with one another, that's something that is deeply comforting. So Paul says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit. What does he mean by that? Participation in the Spirit. That word participation is the same word that he used in chapter 1 when he was rejoicing because of their partnership with him in the gospel. So that word means a partnership or a fellowship. A union, so to speak. And so when he talks about participation in the Spirit, I think he's talking about what happens when God forms a people together to partner with God in proclaiming the good news about Jesus. He says if you have any participation, any fellowship in that given by the Spirit. And then he says if you have any, or any affection and sympathy. Earlier he told them that that he held them in his heart. And he can testify, um, God can testify rather, of how he longs for all of them with the affection of Christ. And if you were here when we looked at that passage, we know that word affection in the Greek is this word intestines. It's a weird word. I, I long for you with the intestines of Jesus, which is, which is just an old 2,000-year-old way of saying, I love you in my gut. <laughs> I feel it deeply. <laughs> and so he says if there's any intestines, literally, <laughs> Or basically, there's any gut love for one another. And then he says, any sympathy. 
That word sympathy oftentimes is translated mercy in the New Testament. For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. So Paul says if there's any of this going on, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, and the word then is implied, complete my joy. Now get this in your mind. He's writing to them from prison. He's spent four years now in prison. He's awaiting his trial before Nero, the psychopath Caesar, who would later start the first mass executions of Christians. So if Paul is sitting in prison and he asks you to complete his joy, how would you respond? I think I would say, you've got it, Paul. (laughs) Anything you want, anything I can do to help you out in your situation, if there's anything I could do to complete your joy, to help fulfill it, I want to do that. And so this is what he says. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Someone says, that's not really what I thought he was going to say. He wants us to complete his joy by just getting along? Yeah. Isn't that weird? (laughs) Paul's joy would be brought to completion not by being released from prison, but by the unity of mind and affection of heart among Jesus' people. Isn't that significant? (laughs) I love the way that one commentator helps us understand this. He says, Christ's grace has turned Paul's heart inside out so that his joy is now bound up in seeing his Christian friends grow more like Jesus. I wonder if that same kind of joy resides in our hearts. To be able to see one another become more like Christ. That's exactly what Paul wants, and it's not limited to him alone. Um, Actually, I'm getting ahead of myself. He would write to the Galatians these words, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. He's writing to these Galatian Christians that he has shared the gospel with. He helped start a church in their city. And as a father preaching the gospel, it's like he gave birth to these people. They became followers of Jesus. And now he says, again, I'm in pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. He wants to see Jesus in these people more and more. And what I started to say a while ago, he's not alone in that. The apostle John, in his third letter, said this, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. This is exactly what Paul is after. He wants to see them walking in the truth. Not just knowing the truth, but but living it out. Becoming more like Jesus. And so he says to them, complete my joy by being of the same mind. And then he says, of one mind. Now, this letter of Philippians, as we read it, is kind of like listening to someone talk on the phone. <laughs> you get one half of the conversation, and you can perhaps kind of piece together what's going on. Sometimes when my wife is at home talking on the phone, I'm like, is she talking to her mom, or is she talking to her friend in church? I don't know who she's talking to. And, and so, not that I'm eavesdropping or anything like that, but, but here in this letter, we're beginning to piece together some of what's going on. Remember, Epaphroditus had come to Paul with a gift from the Philippian Christians, and he's getting an update on what's going on there. And it's not all good. They're facing opposition from without. And it seems like there's growing division within them. He gives hint to it here. But later in chapter 4, he's going to just lay it on the line. And he writes these words. I entreat Euodia, whose name means fragrance, by the way. And I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. 
Yes, I, uh, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored, labored side by side with me in the gospel. This is really significant. I don't know how you would feel about getting your name put into a letter by the apostle and getting called out in front of the church for causing division. But that's exactly what Paul is doing here. But you know what? He's trusting his friendship with these ladies. He says, these ladies have worked with me side by side in the gospel. No doubt he's referring back to 10 years earlier when he started that church. Maybe these were the same ladies who were with Lydia, who was the very first convert in Philippi. He writes to his true companion here. Some people think that might be the pastor. Some people think it might be Lydia, who um, was no doubt a leader in this church. But he says, I entreat Euodia and Syntyche to agree together in the, in the Lord. It's become, it's become to the point where they're taking on this reputation of becoming a quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious bunch, to put it in the words of Anne Rice. And Paul feels the need to, to address this, because if he doesn't, this could divide the church. I like how Tom Wright helps us to think about this agreement in the Lord. He says, what matters is that Christians, like the actors all focusing single-mindedly on the play, should focus completely on the divine drama that is unfolded before their eyes in Jesus the King and is continuing, continuing now into its final act with themselves as the character. When he calls them to, to be of the same mind, to be of one mind with one another, he's not thinking that they will agree on every little thing in their life, from you know whether you should have chocolate ice cream or vanilla ice cream or something like that but to agree on the fundamental truths of the faith, the mission entrusted to this church by the Lord Jesus himself. Let's, let's get the first things first. Or as it's been said, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And I don't know about you, but I've, I've heard of, of churches over the years who would, who would split over you know, what color carpet they're going to put into the new sanctuary. I just think this is insane. The last thing that Jesus prayed for with his disciples on the night that he was crucified, was that they would be united with one another. Paul also says, you can complete my love, I'm sorry, you can complete my joy by having the same love. Seems like maybe there's different loves or loyalties going on in this congregation. We know in Corinth, for example, some people were choosing sides about which leader they liked best. Some said, I, I'm, I'm a follower of Paul, and Others would say, I'm a follower of Barnabas, and others say, I'm a follower of, of Peter. That might be what's going on here. And so he says, I want you guys to have the same love. So here's a quick pop quiz. What is it that all Christians should love? How would you answer that question? If someone said, Jesus, you're correct. That's the, that's the right answer. It's always the right answer. But I'm also thinking, we're called to love God and to love others, Right? Jesus says these are the two great commandments, that you love God with everything you've got, and you love your neighbor as yourself. Paul says, I want you to have the same love. I think this is what he's thinking about here. There's that great quote by the late Anglican minister John Stott in his book, The Contemporary Christian. He said, there are Christian communities all over the world where true, sacrificial, serving, supportive love is to be found, and where such Christian love flourishes, its magnetism is almost irresistible. That's what Paul wants for this early congregation of Jesus. And if he were talking to us, he would want the very same thing. Not division, not popularity contest, but love. Selfless, sacrificial love. He says when this takes place, John Stott says this rather, 
When this takes place, it's magnetism is almost irresistible. That's what he wants for this congregation. That's what I want for this congregation as well. A love for one another. A love for God that others can look in and see and want to be a part of it. But he also calls them to complete his joy by, by being in full accord. He's kind of saying the same thing in different ways, but what's interesting is the word that he uses here. And we're going to refer back to Dennis Johnson and his commentary to help us understand it. Here's what he says. He says a lot about this little word, but it's helpful. Actually, being in full accord represents a single rare Greek word, simpsychoi, which speaks of souls in harmony with one another. Our English expression, soulmates, captures this wonderful word well. It's as if Paul is saying, it's not enough to agree with each other theologically. God actually calls you to care for each other deeply and a love that binds your souls together so strongly that differences of perspective cannot tear you apart. This strong bond of affection, grounded in the truth of the gospel, stabilizes believers' relationships with one another so that they can address their differences, whether doctrinal or interpersonal, in patience, humility, and love. So Paul says, you can, you can make me really happy. You can complete my joy. What would thrill my heart is if you would be of the same mind, dialed in on the gospel of Jesus. If you would have love and affection for one another. If you would be soulmates in this cause for the gospel. Ah, oh, that would just, that would be heaven for me. The way that Christians over the years have put it is like this. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. That phrase charity doesn't mean what it kind of means in our common modern parlance about giving you know, money to people in, in poverty. It means love. It's the old English word for love. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. That's very well said. How might the church of Jesus shine? if we took this to heart. Then Paul moves from preaching to meddling, as as they sometimes say. Look what he says in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That word selfish ambition, it can be translated selfishness or, or selfish rivalry, He says, don't let anything that you do in your life and your life together as a community of faith be motivated from selfishness or or a selfish rivalry or or a selfish ambition with one another. You know who Brian Regan is? He's a comedian. If you've ever seen one of his skits, um, he's he's pretty hilarious. I usually don't find comedians too funny for whatever reason, but I'm I'm in tears with this guy. And he has a a skit in which he he talks about uh, meme monsters. And he talks about being at a dinner party, and he just he wants to contribute to the conversation. So he goes into a story about having his two wisdom teeth pulled. And he learns from this that you never tell a story about having two wisdom teeth pulled because someone's going to parachute in and cut you off and tell their story about having four wisdom teeth pulled. <laughs> he said it happened to him. He started telling his story about having two wisdom teeth pulled, and, and someone jumped in and said, that ain't nothing. Let me tell you about my story of having four wisdom teeth pulled. And in that moment, he just realizes he just kind of shrunk. You go ahead. You tell your four wisdom tooth story. And he talks about me monsters and, and people who, who want the spotlight. And he says that we do this all the time, and we, we have this dynamic at work among people. You know this. You've, you've been in these situations where, 
where someone comes in the conversation and they say, this is where you are, but, but I'm right here. You see the difference? It's you and, and me. You, me. Do you see? And then Brian Regan, I think it's almost off script, just has this kind of throwaway comment. Why do people need to top other people? Obviously, people get something out of it. The Christian tradition has talked about the reason why is because we have a bent-in inclination towards selfishness. The way the theologians put it is in this Latin phrase, homo incovertas in se. I apologize to Grace for getting my Latin a little butchered there, but it just basically means a, a person carved in on themselves. We have that classic uh, extreme picture of that in the, in the ancient character of Narcissus, who looked into a, a well of water and saw his reflection and just wasted away because he was so in love with what he saw. So Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. <laughs> that word conceit, if you were to look in the old King James Version, calls it vainglory, which I can't actually, I don't know, ever used that phrase before, but I actually like it. <laughs> do nothing out of vainglory or, or an empty glory. So I looked up in the dictionary, that definition of conceit. It says to have an excessive appreciation of one's own worth or virtue. Now, don't get Paul wrong. He's not saying that you should think of yourself as dirt or, or he's not indulging in kind of a warm theology where you talk less about yourself. In fact, he would, he would write to the Corinthians these words. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, I'm uh, sorry, to every, everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. I love the way he, he introduced this. By the grace that was given to me, and as we're going to see later on in Philippians, Paul thought an awful lot about himself until he encountered Jesus. He was boasting in his resume. He thought he was the cream of the crop. He had an excessive appreciation for his own worth and value. And then Jesus appeared to him and said, why are you persecuting me? As he was going after his people, putting them to death. So I like the way that Eugene Peterson in his message paraphrases um, what Paul is saying here. He writes, if you've gotten anything at all out of following Christ, if his love has made any difference in your life, if being an, in a community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, then do me a favor. Agree with each other, love each other, and be deep-spirited friends. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. What do you think about this verse? If you take a look at that, <laughs> do nothing, not a single thing, from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. As I've thought about this verse over the years, I've kind of had this reaction. <laughs> Is this not one of, if not the most difficult verse in the scriptures to put into practice in our lives. Maybe you're different from me, but, but for me, as I think about this, I'm like, is there even a day in my life or a moment that I actually do what Paul is saying here? I think what Paul is getting at when he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves, I think what he's getting at, what we need to hear him saying is something like this. Instead of having an excessive appreciation of your own worth and value, I want you to have an excessive appreciation of each other's worth and value. 
Do you see the difference that makes? <laughs> Let me just ask you this question. What if everyone had an excessive appreciation of other people's worth and value? How might your family life be different if every member of your family had an excessive appreciation of one another's worth and value? How might your workplace or your neighborhood or your clubs that you belong to be different if everyone had an excessive appreciation of one another's worth and value? Ah, I got a question for you. Lean in just a little bit. What if your church and the people in it had an excessive appreciation of each other's worth and value. Wouldn't that be amazing? That's actually what Paul is after here. He's like, if you can embody this, you will be a countercultural movement that this world knows nothing of. And then he says this in verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I don't want you to be so focused on yourselves you can't see other people around you that, that needs your help. And someone says, how is this even possible? How, how, do I, how do I live in such a way that is not motivated by selfishness? I mean, I think about myself all the time. I'm with myself all the time. How, how can I be humble in such a way that I, I, I think I have an excessive appreciation of other people's worth? And how, can I, how can I do that? And I'm just going to say, Paul is setting us up for something amazing. In verse 5 and following, he starts out by saying this. Have this mind or this mindset among yourselves. Have this mind in your community of faith, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he's going to tell us, as we'll look at next week, about the humbleness of Jesus. But we'll, we'll pause there in that study and apply it to our lives here in just a moment. But let me just say this. In, in following Jesus, humility is everything. I wonder if, if people like Anne Rice, instead of coming across Christians who are quarrelsome, hostile, and disputatious, if instead she would come across Christians who were humble. I wonder if, if, if many people who've walked away from the faith because of what they've seen inside the church, these people who say they follow Jesus, the incarnation of humility, I wonder if, if they would not have walked away if they had just seen some humility among his followers. So, let's apply this to our lives. <laughs> the first point of application is simply a question. I want you to ask yourself, how is my meme monster showing up in my life? That was a humorous illustration from Brian Regan about meme monsters showing up in parties, but how does the meme monster show up in your life? Now, each one of us has one living inside us, if we're to believe what the scriptures teach us about the inclinations of our heart. So the question is, is how does it show up in your life? And the reason I want to ask this question of you and of me, and I've got to preach this to myself where I can even get up and preach it to you all, how does it show up in our life? And the reason I'm asking is because it showed up in the lives of the people who were close to Jesus. In fact, in the book of Luke, in chapter 9, Luke tells us about this time when they were walking along the way and Jesus asked them what was going on because an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Isn't that bizarre? Most of these people were, were fishermen, some tax collectors, some belonging to a zealous party. But they all came around Jesus and they're learning from this man and they're seeing this man. He was like no other person they ever seen before. And all they can think about is when Jesus comes into the kingdom... 
how are they going to be rewarded about it? They're, they're the greatest. Each one of them is thinking that. But that's kind of toward the beginning of Jesus' ministry. But it reared its ugly head once again on the night that Jesus was betrayed. At the Last Supper, Jesus tells them that one of them is about to betray him. And they start arguing about which of them is the greatest. In other words, the people who spent three years with Jesus, the most humble and kind and loving person imaginable, had this me monster showing up in their life over and over and over again. In other words, they had an excessive appreciation of their own worth and value and an insufficient appreciation of the worth and value of the other disciples of Jesus. Each of these disciples of Jesus counted themselves as more significant than the others. So when I ask you the question, where is your me monster showing up in your life? It's a fair question. Paul wants us to to ask that of ourselves, even though he's not using that phrase, me monster, he's talking about pride showing up in their life. And as someone has said, the real issue here is not if pride exists in your heart. It's where pride exists and how pride is being expressed in your life. And so, I wonder if we were to sit down. Just maybe do this the next time you have coffee with someone here at Mercy Hill Church. And ask each other this question. Tell me, how is pride expressing itself in your life? Where is it showing up in your life? Let's say I'm, I'm having coffee with you and I ask you this question. Or let's say if I'm having coffee with you and you ask me this question. Can you identify where that me monster's showing up? Let me put it this way. I'm going to use a preface my wife says when she gets ready to tell someone. <laughs> We've been laughing about this in our life group. When my, when my wife, uh, she does it in the most gentle way. We call her the velvet brick. When she, when she needs to tell someone something difficult, she prefaces it by saying, you know I love you, don't you? <laughs> and so I'm going I'm to use that phrase. You know I love you, don't you, congregation? If someone were to ask you the question, where is pride showing up in your life, and you draw a blank, the me monster has you by the throat. If you cannot see where pride is showing up in your life, if, if I can be so direct with you, my friends, you don't have a very accurate knowledge of yourself. You're playing a fast one on yourself. As John Stott said, at every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is our greatest enemy, and humility is our greatest friend. At every stage of your life, the me monster is your greatest enemy, and Christ-like humility is your greatest friend. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Here's the second point of application. Not only do we need to ask where the me monster is showing up in our lives, but we also need to cast ourselves humbly upon the mercy of God in Christ. Because Christ not only loved us enough to, to tell us the truth, and Paul is following in his footsteps to tell him that, but Paul did not do what Christ was able to do, which is to die for our sins. And so, if you're convicted, my friends, as I am, there's only one remedy, and that's to turn to the cross of Christ, where God's mercy flows freely. 
Paul's going to tell us in just a, a little bit, in his very next breath, we're going to look at it next week, that Jesus made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You know what this tells me about Jesus? He didn't consider his own life as more significant than yours. He was willing to lay down his life and to take the sins of people like you and me upon himself, that he might be able to offer life and forgiveness and welcome into his eternal kingdom. What a savior he is. And so, here's the third point of application. Let's learn humility from Jesus. Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart. When Jesus wants to highlight a character trait in himself, a virtue that he wants you to learn about, he doesn't point out his holiness, even though he's holy. He doesn't point out his wisdom, even though he's the most wise person who ever lived. He points out his gentleness and his humility. My friends, you and I need Jesus to not only save us from the penalty of sin, we need Jesus to save us from the power of the meme monster that resides in us. We need to go to him to learn humility. And I, I think I've shared this before with you, and I know I've done it interpersonally with some people. A number of years ago, this was probably about, I don't know, five or seven years ago now, I came across this realization, if God wants to make me more like Jesus, we would agree, that's what he wants to do in each of our lives, right? If he wants to make us more like Jesus, he can't do that without dealing with my pride and working a deep Christ-like humility within me. Do you see that? If God wants to make you like Jesus, which he wants to make every follower of Jesus like Jesus, he cannot do that without dealing with your pride and mine. He wants to work a deep Christ-like humility in your life. So let me ask you this question. Do you ever pray for humility? Paul says, in humility, consider one another more significant than yourselves. If you find that hard to do, then we need to pray for humility to do that. So do you ever pray for humility? I remember asking this question of, of a, a person here at Mercy Hill Church. I won't say who it is, but I never forget the response. It's like, no, that would be crazy. <laughs> and I understand why this person said that. Because I think we all know we need to grow in this but we're all afraid of what it might cost in terms of pain, right? <laughs> None of us like to be humbled, which is why it's good news for us to humble ourselves before we need to be humbled, right? And one of the ways of humbling yourself is to ask for humility. I'd rather the Father deal gently with me when my heart is open and pliable wanting this than when my heart is hard and cannot bring myself to ask for humility. Because I think then it gets a little bit more hard when he has to chip harder to see Christ formed in me. Augustine put it well, my friends. For those who would learn God's ways, humility is the first thing, humility is the second, and humility is the third. If you want to know the ways of God, if you want to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, the first thing we have to learn is humility. The second thing we have to learn is humility. And the third thing we have to learn is humility. And I've said this to you before, I know you might remember this. The pursuit of humility is not an elective in the school of following Christ. It's more like the prerequisite for kindergarten.
So, my friends, what if Anne Rice could say, today I became a Christian because I simply couldn't resist being a part of this group of people who are the most humble, kind, and loving people I have ever known? Wouldn't that be amazing? What if Anne Rice just showed up in Bryan College Station and she stayed here at the Hilton Garden Inn? You know, she's probably stay at the Stella or something like that. But let's just say the Stella's full and she's staying here. And she were to walk into this room on a Sunday morning and go, oh, I think I might just see what, what's going on here. And what if she encountered some of the most humble, kind, and loving people she has ever met? And what if, what if she decided that she would actually want to start following Jesus once again because she had been in our midst? Wouldn't that be amazing, my friend? So, Mercy Hill Church, may God work in you a deep, Christ-like humility, which enables you to have an excessive appreciation for others' value and worth.